morning. I have the privilege of sharing special music with you this morning. And this song is called He Will Hold Me Fast.
fast Justice has been satisfied He will hold me fast Race with him to endless life He will hold me fast Till our faith has turned to sight When he comes at last He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior Is this, is this thing on? Yes. Sir. You can hear me from this? Yes. Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, everybody. I am so thankful to be here. Many people are ready. You got to witness any of last night's storm and all the electricity that was flying through the air. You stop and you think about what the Bible says and the spirit of prophecy says the coming of the Lord is like. And lightning will flash from one side of heaven to the other nonstop. And the heavens will open up and close and open up. That's all we needed last night was the heavens to open up and close and open up and close. It was incredible. Anyways... um, Let's have prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we want to say thank you so much for today, for this Sabbath day, for what it is and what it is that you wanted us to have and to think about and remember. I ask that you be with everyone here and be with me as I, as I give this message that is, I'm not sure, my thoughts are all scattered all over the place. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Before I begin, I just want to say that I love all of you, every single one of you. So if there's something that I say in this sermon that offends you, please know that I am not attempting to offend anybody. I am simply speaking what was put on my heart. And though it may come across not in the way that that it was meant to, sometimes what we think in our head doesn't always come through on paper the way that we want it to. So forgive me. My heart longs for heaven, my heart longs for home, I'm sick and tired of this old world, 
And I just want to go home. I hear my father calling, and I know he feels it too. He's lonesome for his little boy, and he wants him home real soon. We're both homesick for heaven. When the family's all back home It seems like forever That I've wanted to be there And though we've talked most every day It's just not like face to face I read all their letters and it helps me keep in touch. But sometimes I just like to hold the hands that gave so much. My heart longs for heaven. My heart longs for home. I'm sick and tired of this old world. And I just want to go home. I hear my father calling. And I know he feels it too. He's lonesome for his little boy. And he wants him home real soon. We're both homesick. For heaven, when the family's all back home. The question becomes, what is heaven? The world has its own definition. Most of them, you find, deal with an immoral act between people who aren't married or some far-off place with white beaches, palm trees, and crystal clear blue-green water. Some folks see heaven as a place minus their parents or family of any kind or any set of rules. The dictionary defines heaven in this fashion. A place regarded in various religions as the abode of God or the gods. And the angels of the good and the angels, and of the good after death, often traditionally depicted as being above the sky. Now, here's some synonyms for heaven, and they are not exclusive. There was a massive list. I chose a few. Some of them will sound very familiar, maybe all of them. The promised land, the celestial city, paradise, nirvana. I had to chuckle about that one. Zion. Abraham's bosom, the next life, the afterlife, the happy hunting ground, the Elysian fields, the islands of the blessed, Valhalla, Avalon, and the list can just go on and on and on. The Seventh-day Adventist, however, understanding of heaven is, and actually when I looked this up and I was looking through things online, this actually popped up in a Google search. It floored me. I was not expecting 
But it says, the biblical definition of heaven, and it gave me what Seventh-day Adventists, and it said, this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe, this is the biblical definition. And wow, that's kind of cool. So this is what it says, and I, I, I copied the first line, and the rest I kind of paraphrased. So the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of heaven is that heaven is a material place where God resides. It actually begins at the second coming. Well, and that's what it says. I said, well, that's quite not right because it can begin now if you accept him into your heart. But when Christ comes that second time and takes his people with him for that thousand years, which is known as the millennium, where, where the righteous get to look at the books and to get to judge the wicked. And then after that thousand years, when the Lord brings new Jerusalem back down here to the earth and he raises the wicked dead, And they see the results of everything and they try to take that city and fire comes and wipes them all out. And then God recreates the earth. That was all in that definition of what Seventh-day Adventists believe heaven to be. I was like, that's pretty impressive. But what does God's word really say? It says all kinds of things. It talks about a city, a reward, a place, a home, a people. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells us how to reconnect, to restore with God's help the relationship that was lost in Eden. There were many times when Jesus was on earth that his disciples were fearful about the words Jesus was saying. The night of the Lost Supper was no exception. I mean, excuse me, the Last Supper, not the Lost Supper. It was no exception. They came in, everyone was sitting around, and they were looking at each other like wondering what's going on. Jesus had been talking, they had been hearing that, but nothing was happening because no one had washed their feet. And so Jesus got up and he washed their feet. Once he finished washing their feet, he instituted the Lord's Supper with the, the grape juice and the bread. He predicts in the process of all of this, his own betrayal and arrest. And his disciples' minds are spinning. They're like, what in the world? And then he looks at Peter and he predicts Peter's denial, which Peter flatly denies. And we all know that that's just what happened. All of this was too much for the disciples to handle. So he comforts them with these words. You find in John chapter 14. Verses 1 to 6 say this. This is in the middle of all this. This is before they have left the upper room. And he said a lot of things. And he says a lot of things after this. But these words he says to comfort them. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I go back to verse 3. I'm going to jump ahead of myself here in my whole sermon, but it's okay. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, 
there you may be. And if you stop and think about it, that's heaven. When I think about those words, all I can think about is heaven, home, a place I have never been. Never. I sat in class at Southern many, 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 many years ago. Not as many as some folks in this room, but still many. In the front row, you're not supposed to talk, but I always used to write back notes back and forth to a young lady that sat next to me. And she asked me where my home was. Well, I knew what she wanted. She wanted me to tell her where my parents lived and where I called home. But that's not what I wrote on the paper. I wrote, my home is in heaven, a place I've never been. And she just, she jumped. The whole chair, the whole table shook. And she wrote back, I know that, but no one ever says that. And I wrote back, but it's the truth. And the conversation spiraled into something totally different. So, when you think about the song that I sang, or attempted to sing, and it talked about heaven, it also talked about the family being back home. What is family? And this is the part that gets tough. In today's world, that is a dangerous question. For generations, mankind has said that family consists of a mom, dad, and kids. You can throw in aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins, and it can go on and on. But the dictionary defines family as a group consisting of parents and children living together in a household. That's all it says. In one dictionary, you can look in other dictionaries and in older dictionaries, and it will say something different. This was a more modern version, and maybe I shouldn't have used it, but I did. And for me, that definition leaves something to be desired, specifically when it comes to the word parent. In today's world, doesn't have to mean male and female. It can mean things that, according to God's word, are an abomination, things that you will never see in heaven. Even our own definition of family aren't really all that correct. If Jesus is the example that we are to follow, what is it that he actually says? And Donna read that to us today in our scripture, and I'm going to read it again for you. Am I in the right place? Yeah. This is Jesus. He's been surrounded by people his whole ministry, and he's in a room talking to a bunch of people where no one can get into. But his mom and his brothers are outside knocking on the door. And this is what he says. While ye yet talk to the people, behold his mother and his brother, and stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brother, and stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? He asked them a question, point blank. Who are they? And he stretched forth his hands toward his disciples. And I find that key, and I got to thinking about that, and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Why would the verse sit there and say he stretched his hands toward his disciples? 
Was Jesus always just surrounded by his disciples or did the scribes and Pharisees always have spies watching him and people that had no, all they wanted to do was trap him? So there were people there that were, that were totally against what he was for, which in my mind is why he pointed to his disciples. Now, that's just in my mind and maybe that's just my thoughts. I don't know. If this is what Jesus says, then why do we, then why do we struggle with that concept? That concept being, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus also restates the same thought in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you go back to chapter 7, it says this. And Jesus adds to that thought a little bit here. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But this is the key. But he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Think that through. God's definition, Jesus' definition of family is much greater than what we believe family to be. It's much greater than the person sitting next to you that's your immediate family. Believe it or not, everyone in this church is family. All of us. We all can go back to Noah, and then for Noah, we go back to Adam. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care your heritage. I don't care where you came from. We are all brothers and sisters. Every single one of us. But people struggle with that concept because they don't want to accept that at times. Most of the time, the world accepts its own definition of family. That definition, in reality, attempts to get people to choose family, your immediate family. Your brothers, your sisters. That's what it wants you to accept over everyone else, even when the family member is living in open sin. We use phrases such as, blood is thicker than water. The ties that bind, family ties, brotherly band, and the list can go on. I tried to look up a load of these, and it was a struggle because it kept wanting to come back to one or two. And the one that jumps out quite a bit is that blood is thicker than water. And most people have their own thought. They think what that means. They think that it, it, and actually what we say it means today is never what it was meant to mean. Blood, people look at today is, oh, it's your, it's your brother, it's your sister. It's your husband, it's your wife, it's your parents. No, it is not. The origins of that blood is thicker than water stem from the fact that blood referred to those people you went into battle with, you went into war with. Water referred to the womb where you came from when you were born. Think that through. People will say, well, we're not in a war. Last I checked, we were in a war when they called the Great Controversy. We're blood brothers of Christ. That's who we all are, and that's what we need to see ourselves as. For generations, phrases like this have been used during times of war and strife to get people to choose family and home to fight for, even when the quote-unquote family was in the wrong. I, 
I, I love reading history, and I love looking at the history of, and I've read many histories of war, and I look at the Civil War in this country I studied extensively because I love looking at this, that story because it's about brother against brother and family against family. But there were re- people chose to fight for their home family, for, st- fight, fight for the South or fight for the North based solely upon the fact that, well, I can't fight against, that's my brother, or I can't fight against him. But yet there were friends who were on opposite sides of the conflict, and history has written about it, that they would meet on the battlefield in the middle of a heated battle, and they couldn't pull the trigger. But some of them did, and some of them didn't. Blood is thicker than water. Blood. Blood brothers. Not blood by birth. Water refers to where you're born. That's what it really means. Is this something that we do in the church? Are we always siding with or choosing our immediate family when we know that they are not biblically or spiritually right? Do we do that? I have heard many people justify this by simply saying, what what choice do I have? Their family. And at that point, no thought has been given to who Jesus has said his family is. Most times we choose our own word, our own wants and desires instead of God's. And if you think that process through a couple weeks ago, and I think it was a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last quarter in our Sabbath school lesson, Cain and Abel were talked about. What was it that Cain said to Jesus? And Jesus, yo, where's your, where's, where's your brother? And Cain says, yo, am I my brother's keeper? And when you looked at the lesson, the lesson brought it out, and it brings out in the Bible, it brings out in the spirit of prophecy that, yeah, we are all responsible for one another. When there's issues in the church... Everyone in the church is responsible for it. But so many people say, well, that's not my problem. I shouldn't have to deal with that. And that's not the case. Everyone in the church, when the Israelites, Israelites, when there was a problem in the children of Israel, when Achan stole stuff from Jericho, did he suffer or did all of Israel suffer? All of Israel suffered because they were all responsible. All two plus million people. So when there's issues in the church or within the family, it affects everybody, not just one group of people. So here's a little parable by Morris Vanden called Marriage Proposal, Be My God. As Bob rightly says when he reads these, he loves these. I love the same book as I read it many times. Here's what this one says. Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive it a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Matthew 19, 29. I'm asking you to be my God. However, there are certain qualifications. Qualifications, we tend to do this. So see if you find yourself in this group. First, I wish it understood that I love myself more than I do you. This is a person talking to God. My family and friends are also more important to me, which is understandable. I am sure when you consider that I have known them so much longer than I have you. Second, if it comes to a crisis with respect to any basic decision, of course, I will consult my own wishes rather than yours. Some of your ideas seem very strange to me, and if I am to make a name for myself in the business in which I am employed, I cannot be tied down to your set of values. I'm sure you understand how I feel. Third, I am reserving my right to my own time. 
I am a very busy person and cannot be expected to spend time in communion with you day by day. Whatever time I have left over from my business must be primarily spent with my family and friends. Fourth, a word about my property. You must understand that it belongs to me exclusively. I find it hard to say goodbye to my money. After all, you own the cattle upon a thousand hills, as well as extensive mining assets, so I can see no reason for you to make any claims on my property or my money. Oh, yes, another thing. I cannot bear sickness, tears, or sorrow. So please do not expect me to enter into your fellowship with you in suffering. I have no desire to become involved in service to others. Bear your own cross and leave me out of it. However, I do want you to be my God. As such, you will have the full responsibility for providing me with salvation, for showering me with blessings, and for answering my prayers. This will free me to give full attention to myself, my family and friends, my possessions, and, of course, my own business. Under the above conditions, I can enjoy having you as my God, and I feel sure we could have some nice times together, maybe on weekends, you know, if I'm not too tired. Will you say yes? If you do... Please begin construction at once on my heavenly mansion and go ahead with preparations for the marriage supper of the Lamb. I plan to be there if, if I'm not too busy. The Bible is filled with stories of people who choose to do things their way instead of God's. There are also stories of people who have chosen to honor God's definition and do things His way instead of the world's. There's one that I can think of in the Bible with, where this choice is front and center. This is actually the story of David and Jonathan. They're not what we would call family. But you all know the story. We're just going to give you a brief recap because it's, it merits the recap. Jonathan was Saul, King Saul's firstborn son. He was the crown prince. The throne was supposed to be his but he also knew that he knew that God had taken it away from him and torn it away from his father because his father sinned and refused to acknowledge his sin and humble himself. Somewhere along the line, Samuel anointed David, who was just a young boy, maybe a, maybe a teenager. And then Saul began to be pestered by, the Bible uses the word demons or evil spirits. So they found someone who played music. That was David. You know, David had been anointed, probably wondering, how in the world am I supposed to be a king when King Saul is king? I know nothing about being a king. Well, God took care of that. God put him in with the royal family so that he could actually learn how to be a king. So David played for King Saul to quiet those evil spirits. Somewhere along that line, David went home. Saul and the children of Israel went off the war. And David used to go and take food to his brothers. And one time when he went there, he heard the challenge from Goliath, who had been challenging Israel for 40 days. And this is where God began to lift David up into the eyes of all the children of Israel. And David's heart burned to take that giant out. And King Saul tried not to let him, but David eventually went and did it. And he took out the giant Goliath. 
After that, King Saul took David. David was never allowed to go home again. He made David a servant and a son, or slave and a son, if you want to call it that. And David became, in some ways, almost leader of his army, but not quite. And somewhere in there, Jonathan and David became best friends, friends that were inseparable, and they needed each other. Jonathan helped David learn how, what it meant to become and be a king. And realize this, Jonathan was not, the people say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but Jonathan fell a long way from the tree because he was nothing like his dad. He was a righteous man who loved his Lord, who, who could have and who did willingly what God asked. He knew that David was anointed somewhere along the line. He figured that out. He knew it. And he was okay with that. Jonathan wasn't the only one because David married Michael, Jonathan's sister, and even she helped protect David when David had to run for his life. And then somewhere in there, in that time of David's wandering, when he was running from Jonathan's father, Jonathan and David were able to get together. Who knows how long they were together, but they made a covenant with each other that no matter what happened, that they would look out for each other's children or who was ever left if something happened to one of them. And they both swore to that and they both committed to that. Jonathan dies in battle with his dad. David becomes king. After David's kingdom is assembled or, or established, he remembers his covenant with Jonathan. And he asks, is there anybody left in the house of King Saul or in Jonathan? And they found Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who basically had broken ankles because he was dropped when, as he was fleeing after King Saul and all of them were killed in battle. And his ankles were broken. Mephibosheth lived in David's house, ate from David's table every day of his life. Even when Absalom rebelled against his father, and David had to flee Jerusalem, and Mephibosheth tried to go, but Mephibosheth's servant lied. And because he couldn't walk, he couldn't get on his donkey, so he stayed there. He didn't, he didn't clean himself, he didn't cut his hair, he did nothing until David came back in the city. And David's like, what happened? Why couldn't you come? And he tells him the story. And David said, don't worry about it. You're still my family. You're still my family. Some people might look at that and say, what does that have to do with family? Understand, if Jonathan had been king, his brothers and sisters would have been fine. David was not considered by law of the time family. And when somebody else becomes king, that's not a family in that day and age. You wiped out anyone that was left from anyone else's family. By laws of that time, David should have slew everyone that was left in Saul's family. But he wasn't going to do that because it wasn't who he was. He understood that every one of us is family. Jonathan understood that every one of us is family. Jonathan chose to honor God when it came to family. He chose not to enable his father's sin. To enable his sin would meant that he would have gone along with his father when he wanted to kill David, and he would have attempted to kill David. And he wasn't willing to do that. We need to see family differently than the world. 
The family ties that bind us need to be based on the example Jesus set for us. With that thought in mind, we need to think about what and where our home truly is. What is home? Here's another short parable by Morris Venden. This one's a little bit harder to read, maybe. I don't know if it quite goes, but it went in my mind. It goes. Because this is it. This is the world that we live in. It's called coming home. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Revelation 2.4. Once upon a time, which should give you a clue as to the sort of story this is going to be, there were two people who loved each other and decided to be married. And remember, this is simply a parable. So apply this to the church, which is Christ's bride, and him. The husband thought his bride was the most beautiful and gentle creature he had ever seen, and the wife thought her husband was the most fascinating and handsome man in the whole world. The marriage began, as many marriages do, with high hopes and great expectations. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this next part, I remember watching as a kid my parents do this, and they still do this today when my dad leaves the house. Every morning when the husband had to leave for work, he he would linger over the goodbye, and his wife would stand in the doorway and wave. She didn't go back inside until all that was to be seen was an empty spot at the corner where the car got out of sight. My parents didn't quite do that, but close. In the evening, she would peek out the window every minute or two and would be at the door to welcome him. But after a while, when the husband had to leave for work, he would just gulp down a hot drink and rush out the door. And sometimes, she wasn't even out of bed yet. When he came home at night, often he would find her busy at some household task, and she would look up in surprise and say, Oh, are you home already? I'll be finished here in a few minutes. And then I'll start supper. The marriage wasn't over, but the honeymoon was. Well, one day, not too long after this, the bride, who was not just a wife, was busy sewing. Somewhere in the back of her mind, she expected to be interrupted any minute because it was almost evening. But she wasn't interrupted. Finally, she finished sewing. Then she started supper. But still, her husband didn't come home. After a very long time, she ate supper by herself. But she was worried now and just picked at her food. Much later, she finally cried herself to sleep on the living room couch because he never came home at all that night. He did come home the following evening. And when he walked in, she asked him, where have you been? He looked at her astonished. What do you mean? Surely you don't expect me to come home every night. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in a long time. There are thousands of married people who spend time apart. So what's the big deal? If I don't come home now and again, we don't have to be that rigid about our marriage. Last night, I just didn't feel like coming home. I had some more important things to do. You know, I have a busy schedule, you know, and I came home to you, and I come home to you most nights. Isn't that enough? No, it's not, she replied. Started to cry. Hey, look. He said more gently, the trend of our marriage is for me to come home. You shouldn't get upset about the occasional night here and there that I want to spend with one of my friends. I don't have to come home every night in order for us to stay married. 
I think it's much more healthy for our marriage not get stuck in a rut. We'll have a much more exciting marriage. If you are curious about the ending of this little parable, let me assure you, they did not live happily ever after. But apply that spiritually to us in our relationship, not only with each other, but with God. Think that through. Jesus is the one. Is he there crying over us when we don't spend time with him morning and evening? Or we rush out the door and we don't say hello to him? I'm just asking. And basically done. Just have a couple other thoughts. I asked two main questions during the sermon. And they were this. What is heaven? And what is family? Maybe I haven't answered them in the way that some people might have wanted them to be answered. I don't know. But I'm going to reread something I already read, and then I'm going to finish with a couple of other thoughts, and that's it. There are times we live in a world that's going crazy. It's every day, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And like the disciples of old, we can get frustrated, and we can begin to wonder what is going on, what is happening. As Adventists, we know what the Bible says, and we have the the spirit of prophecy we can look at, and we can read, and we can see what's coming. We don't know all the logistics and how it's all going to play out, but we can see that. But Jesus still comforts us with these words. And if you stop and think about it, these words answer these two questions. What is heaven and what is family? Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know and the way ye know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, ye know not, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the reality. That relationship, daily relationship, with Jesus. Heaven, in my mind, is being with Jesus where he is at. That's heaven. To be there, however, you've got to be family. A family who is willing to do the will of their father in heaven. Remember, Jesus was said, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus looked at his disciples. Oh, these are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They're my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. A family who is willing to do the will of their Father in heaven. If we are not willing to do his will, however, we will hear the words from Jesus' lips, these words that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. I never knew you. Depart from me, 
ye that work iniquity. If we're not willing to do things God's way and be part of his family, that is what we will hear when all is said and done. But it's my prayer that we all treat each other like family, as God would want us to, so that we don't ever hear those words, so that we can spend eternity together forever with Jesus. Dear Father in heaven, we want to say thank you so much for today, for the blessings that you've given each one of us, for the gift of life, for the gift of family, for the gift and the opportunity to spend forever with you, because that's heaven. It's spent with you, and it's spent with family. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.